Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to take an alternative approach to medicine for a while and see how the use of corrective nutrition might help reduce the need to be diagnosed with disease. It sounds like a simple concept, but I guarantee you there is more that meets the eye. Ph.D. biophysicist Dr. Jack Ebner is in the studio here over from Kona on Hawaii Island on a special trip to share his expertise on medical treatment of some common problems. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, it's summer student research time. Hawaii Pacific Health, which incorporates Kapiolani, Palimomi, Straub, and Wilcox Hospitals, has the 2014 Research Scholar Program, and we have three of them here today to share the projects that are taking place right here in Hawaii and how this might just change the way we treat a variety of common medical problems. Today, we have first of three, John Tanaka, and he is doing some research that is going to be very relevant to some of the population right here in the islands. John, welcome to The Body Show. Hi there. Now, you're currently studying at USC, and you're studying biology and environmental science. Uh, Yep, that's correct. And this summer, you're going to be doing, you are doing a wonderful project that's taking a look at some of the youngest of our population. What are you studying and... Tell us a little bit more. All right. So my project this summer has been looking at newborn fat-free mass percentages. And what we're trying to look at is if there's correlations between this fat-free mass percentage at birth and I guess kind of a BMI measurement at their two-month and six-month checkup. So you're looking at how much body fat an infant has Mm -hmm. and trying to determine what that means as they get older. Exactly. What have you found so far? Well, so far we found some interesting things. Um, Like we found that the uh, Hawaii population has a much smaller, a much leaner population um, compared to the national average. Um, We've also found that that actually kind of corrects itself as they age. So by the time they're two months of age, we're looking at, um, they're right around the normal, um, where we're using a weight to length ratio. So they're right around the normal weight to length ratio that's seen um, in the worldwide populations. Now, when we look at some of that research being done in the youngest, any idea of how we might use that in the future? Yeah, so um, the main reason we're doing this research is because childhood obesity has been such a big problem recently. Um, from 1980 to 2010, there was a tripling, I think, of, or the rates tripled up to 17% of all um, kids aged 2 to 19 were termed obese. So we're just trying to look and see if using our techniques now and trying to look at fat-free mass percentages at birth will have any effects on developing some kind of um, interventional treatment, some way that we can kind of hit it early. So really, talk about prevention. We're talking really small now. Yep, we're talking real small. Fantastic. All right. So so that's what you're studying. You have a big presentation, all three of you coming up in about a week and a half or so. And it sounds like that that is a really good start to how to attack the childhood obesity problem mm-hmm. that really starts, you know, we're now seeing maybe it starts at birth. Maybe there are some right. interventions that we can do in the very young, which sounds like a great plan to help attack that problem. Excellent. And the doctor you're working with with this um, project? Yeah, I'm working with two neonatologists, um, Dr. Sherry Cole and Dr. Kara Wong-Ramsey out at Kapiolani Medical Center. 
Fantastic. Research happening right here at Kapiolani. All right. Next, we have Noah Yi. Uh, Noah, you're doing uh, some some excellent studies looking at what happens. You know, childhood obesity, people get older. Unfortunately, heart disease becomes an issue. Now, you're currently a student and you're studying at Tufts University Biology. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So what are you doing here in Hawaii and what kind of research are you working with? This summer, I'm working with a cardiologist out at Polymomi Medical Center by the name of Dr. John Gao. We're looking at two surgical treatment options for patients with multi-vessel coronary artery disease, or lots of blockages in the heart, and left ventricular dysfunction, which is where the bottom portion of the heart isn't working too well. And so you're looking at the difference between doing two different types of interventions. What are those? Those two interventions are called percutaneous coronary intervention or putting stents in someone's uh, vessel or coronary artery bypass grafting, which is open heart surgery. So that's a big difference. A less invasive procedure where you put something, maybe it looks sort of like the spring in your pen, you put it in an artery, open it up versus a bigger procedure. And what are you finding so far? So, so far we're looking at patients that receive PCI are more, there's more of them compared to the patients that receive cabbage, which is coronary artery bypass grafting. So we were looking to see if the patients that receive PCI are doing better after the procedure because the standard of care for patients with multivessel coronary artery disease and left ventricular dysfunction is coronary artery bypass. Sure, it's the big surgery, It's the big surgery. So you're trying to see if maybe doing the lesser procedure gives you the same as the big surgery. That is correct. What did you find? So, so far, we found that in our patient population out at Polymomi Medical Center, the, the difference between the ejection fraction, which is a, one of the parameters we used to define success, it's a clinical surrogate. Uh, the difference between that of the cabbage group and that of the PCI group were not statistically significantly different. So meaning that the PCI group is doing fairly well. So if you had been diagnosed with, you know, multivessel disease or lots of blockages, you might be offered the smaller procedure or the bigger procedure. And in the past, we used to think, hey, if you've got a bunch of blockages, you need the bigger procedure. But now we might find out that that may not be as necessary. That is true. But it's important to note also that candidates for the coronary artery bypass grafting surgery sometimes get turned down. So that's why there may be an influx of PCI patients. So we're basically looking to see if the procedure is not inferior to the cabbage procedure. Sure, because, boy, if I ever had heart disease, and let's just knock on wood somewhere that I don't get it, but if I ever had it and somebody said, big surgery, small surgery, you would do the same, I'd be like, bring on the small procedure. We so all have a heart. <laughs> absolutely. So certainly we'd want to do something less invasive, but it sounds like it's a great way to really take a look at the research, figure out how does this, how do these two different procedures play a role and what's best for the individual. So it's good that you're working on that. You know, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, it's a mouthful, but it is the number one cause of mortality in the United States. 10 to 1 over cancer or anything else is dying of heart disease and strokes. So talk about important research. Thanks for doing that. All right, and last but definitely not least, we have Dylan Goto. And Dylan, you're looking at something from a realistic perspective. You're looking at, you know, the cost of medicine. Where are you going to school? I am from Creighton University up in Omaha, Nebraska. Fabulous. What are you studying? I'm studying, uh, I'm double majoring actually in chemistry and biology. All right, that's a lot of work. (laughs) Lots of science classes, a lot of labs. Absolutely. It's It's a lot of course load. 
Yes, I bet it is. So you're studying about the budget impact of doing different types of screening tests. Tell me a little more. Sure. So my research is actually a lot more different than the other two uh, researches that we heard about. In fact, mine is more looking at like a theoretical type of a research and seeing if we can incorporate a new type of testing, PCA3 testing, and see if we can save the amount of unnecessary biopsies and actually the cost of a typical of a theoretical health pop health model plan. So you're looking at prostate cancer screening. Absolutely. And if there's a particular new type of test that could be done that is more specific, but also saves money. Yes, that is correct. And it's found that the current traditional PSA testing is very unreliable, which leads to a lot of unnecessary prostate biopsies and over over treatment of prostate cancer, basically. Yeah, it's one of the huge controversies in medicine is should people be, well, should men in particular be screened for prostate cancer? And if so, what should be done if their test results are high? And, you know, in the last couple of years, the medical community has had a bit of a disagreement about what to do. And right now they're looking at developing guidelines. So you're looking at a novel test to see if maybe it could really eliminate that whole possibility. So what have you found so far? So what we found is that just by incorporating PCA3 testing or prostate cancer gene 3, we can actually save in a theoretical, hypothetical, excuse me, 1 million patients. We could save about 587 unnecessary biopsies at a cost of about $1 million. So you can see that there's a lot of benefits to including this type of test and see if we can actually decrease the amount of unnecessary, peop- of unnecessary biopsies and people being diagnosed, diagnosed with this prostate cancer. And so if you can eliminate the types of the number of biopsies, hey, listen, I I certainly don't think that biopsies are are granted. They may be necessary. I don't think they're pain-free. And given the way that they do a prostate biopsy, if there's a way to do a better screening test, it certainly sounds like we need to look into that. And from what you're saying, it makes financial sense as well. Absolutely. It's always important to make sure that we keep in mind that Medicine is actually very costly. It's very costly. And the most effective way may actually be a way to decrease the amount of cost that people pay for and actually the amount of people that are actually being treated with prostate cancer. Well, and you're feeding right into the rest of our show. So I want to thank all three of you for coming here today, for being on radio, for telling us a little bit about the projects you're working on. Best of luck with your presentation that's coming up soon, I think sometime next week. And uh, I hope we hear more from all of you in the future about some great, exciting things that you're doing in medicine. So thanks to all of you. All right. Now, today, I'd like to go ahead and switch gears a little bit, introduce our main guest for the show. Dr. Jack Ebner has a Ph.D. in biophysiology and along the lines of preventing disease before you actually have to go ahead and do treatments and biopsies. We're talking about a slightly different approach to overall health and wellness. Corrective Nutrition is his platform and also his website. And today we're going to talk a little more about this concept, explore how what we eat and what stress our bodies are dealing with on a regular basis might just be the key to discovering an alternative path to good health. Now, we'd like to hear from you. If you hear something curious that either uh, Dr. Ebner or myself say, we'd love to get your opinion. And you can join us at 941-368-89 on Oahu or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Now, biophysiology, what is it and how did it lead you to where you're at today? 
Well, back in uh, 1988, when I first moved to Hawaii, I was so impressed with the beauty here, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, but I wanted it to be something that would improve people's lives as well as the environment. And that was the vow that I made to myself. I ended up getting involved in renewable energy that I have been involved with off and on since then to save people money and lower the amount of pollution in the air. And then in night, at the end of 1988, I was visiting a friend over here on Oahu, and uh, I came over to see surfing on the North Shore, which I'd only seen on television before. And we were riding around in his little sports car, and he was doing errands. And he said, listen to this, and uh, put a, a taped lecture in his cassette player in his little car while he went off to do errands. And it was a health lecture by Tony Robbins, who maybe you've heard of. He's a... a uh, pretty well-known uh, fellow, and uh, the gist of what he was saying was that it was that disease was not caused by germs and viruses, but rather by this thing called toxemia. Well, that was totally new to me. I had, you know, that was, anyhow, it was a six-hour lecture. I only had time for maybe 30 minutes of it, but I asked my friend if he'd make a copy of this tape lecture and mail it over to me, which he did. And I listened to it very studiously over and over and rewinding and everything else. And in the context of his lecture, what he was saying made sense. So what exactly was that? A lot of people may not understand the term toxemia and what exactly that refers to. This struck a chord with you, and it was back in the 80s. You mentioned cassette tapes. Because that, that's, that's, right. that's not where I don't even know <laughs> if I have a cassette player these days. But all right. So what was it about this term toxemia that you understood or that struck this chord with you to make you say, yeah, I get that? Well, basically what he was saying was that <clears throat> uh, we have total control over our health or almost total control over our health versus the prevailing concept is that uh, you contract, come down, get or somehow another uh, you know, you have bugs that somehow or another get in your body and cause pathology or, or lack of ease. You don't feel good. Symptoms. And he's saying, no, that's not the case. Well, that, was a, wouldn't be a, that would mean a sea change in my thinking. I couldn't just rely on one person's lecture, uh, you know, for a shift in my thinking. And so I found out where he got his information. And long story short, that was... It's been 25 years, and I've probably put in about 25,000 hours of reading and research since then. I didn't have to do that much, but I knew I wanted to work with people that had health issues, and so I felt it was the responsible thing to do is try to learn as much as I could. He was correct, and it's not germs and viruses. It's toxemia, and what toxemia is basically is where one is living in such a way as to where they're not keeping up with uh, drainage from their own cellular debris on the inside, metabolic waste, and putting things in their body from the outside that your body can't relate to. In other words, thing, substances that your body cannot convert to itself. They're contaminants. So it's interesting because when you describe some of the basics, and these days we've kind of taken a different approach in medicine, at least we're, we're beginning to, you know, from a very reactive approach of, okay, you have, earlier we were talking about heart disease, so you have heart disease, you have blockages, to a little bit more of a proactive approach where it's, 
eat healthy, live well, don't get blockages. See if you can monitor your diet before you get the diagnosis of heart disease. What else can you do to prevent it? So even standard traditional medicine is kind of moving towards that direction now. Um, insurance companies and also major medical centers are trying to look at ways to keep populations healthy rather than wait until they're sick and provide a lot of medications or treatments or surgeries or anything of the like. So whereas in the 80s, I think you're right, this would have been a fairly novel approach and, and totally blowing people out of the water, like you mentioned, a sea change. It seems like these days that's a little bit more of an acceptable adoptable theory. Do you find that the tides have changed a little bit, or do you feel like you're still fighting an uphill battle? Well, I think that a lot more people these days are more health conscious, and uh, just because it's it's out there on the public airwaves, but uh, they there's still things that they need to know that I don't think the average person knows, and if they have some sort of a health issue, uh, the fear factor may come into play, and, and they may make decisions that aren't in their best interest. Okay. Can you give me an example? Uh, sure. Well, for instance, uh, I need to give you a little background information, if I may, first. Okay, this whole thing about toxemia, uh, it's stress that causes toxemia. And there's three forms of stress. There's physical stress, accidents, injuries, getting too hot, too cold, not enough sleep. There's emotional stress that everybody knows about. And then there's chemical stress, uh, breathing dirty air, drinking polluted water, you know, the smoke environment, smoky environment, putting things in your body that your body can't use. Those are chemical stressors. And uh, what happens is our bodies run on glucose, which we get from carbohydrates, and electricity that we get from sleeping. You ever hit your funny bone and it shocks you? Well, and that's a nerve, sure, nerve impulses, which are based on electrical conduction. That's right. You know, the heart has a whole electrical system, so okay. Our bodies run on electricity, and when you sleep, your brain is like a battery. It recharges, and every cell in your body is hooked up to your brain through your nervous system. And your brain controls every function in your body pretty much at the subconscious level, not me talking or you listening, but it's real busy otherwise running your whole body, right? Well, and, and we're going to talk some more about the functions of the brain in just in just a couple minutes. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jack Ebner. He is the founder of Corrective Nutrition, and he has a website, correctivenutrition.com. And today we're talking about a slightly different approach to theories of disease in medicine. And so far we found a lot of common ground. How can you stay healthy rather than having to develop a medical illness or disease and live a long, healthy life as much as possible. When we come back, we're going to talk a little more about this. We're going to explore the theory of the brain being in charge of a lot of our processes and some of these different stresses that are going on in the body and how we can potentially affect those in a positive fashion. You can join our discussion at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. The New York Times calls her one of the jazz world's finest, and HPR is thrilled to welcome back to the Atherton studio vocalist and pianist Karen Allison for her only Honolulu appearance this year. Join us for a sophisticated evening of bossa nova, ballads, blues, and beyond. Tickets remain for Friday, August 15th at 7.30. Reserve your seats at 955-8821 or purchase online at hprtickets.org. 
British Isles include lots of very small, charming islands, as actor Martin Clunes has discovered. They're mythical, magical places if you get the weather right. The people of Scotland are gearing up for a big vote soon on independence. They realize that this is a a once-in-a-generation decision, and they want to make an informed decision. And we'll look at issues women across Europe are facing on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., right after Fresh Air. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jack Ebner, and we're talking about different ways to approach medical health and how we can try and do our best to stay healthy and how we might have more control over the situation than we might think so. Before the break, we were talking about the brain being in charge of a variety of different and actually almost all of the features and the processes that take place in the body. We're going to explore that topic a little bit more. However, if you want to join us, if you have a comment or a thought, or maybe find that some of this resonates with you too, you can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Jack, we're talking about the brain being in charge of everything and how really a lot of the almost all functions are in some way connected to brain activity. Tell me a little more about that. Well, you know, all, the, all pretty much all your acute and chronic symptoms that uh, most of us have been led to believe are caused by things outside our body, namely bacteria and germs and viruses, uh, are not. What it is is when your body and your brain is programmed for survival at the cellular level, that's the name of the game. That's the bottom line. When you start to exceed a level of what would be considered acceptable toxemia by your brain, your brain, your subconscious brain, will initiate and conduct a bodily process of elimination. Okay, this is totally different than what everybody's been taught to believe. As an example, a cold is not a thing that you catch. A cold is a body process of elimination. The so-called flu is a body process of elimination. This is debris exiting your body. These are elimination processes. So whereas I would see somebody and suggest, okay, I've done this nasal swab in this case. We'll use as an example, you know. And I found that you are positive for influenza A. We'll just pick that. And I want you to take this antiviral and see if this will help you as your body goes through the process of being sick and then eliminating whatever that particular infection is. I'm suggesting this is from a virus, influenza in particular. In that sort of a clinical scenario, would you think that the virus was actually not the cause and that the body was doing this, or I'm not following the elimination process? Okay, well... In that scenario, somebody comes in and they get a nasal swab influenza. How would that relate to what you're describing? Well, what I would recommend they do is they go home and go to bed. So would I. I hope so. And don't don't spread their germs. Yeah. And they, because what's going on is they're having an elimination process. Okay. It's, and it shouldn't be stopped with drugs or anything else. The body, you should allow your body to purge and, uh, you know, it's it's a lack of ease. It's dis-ease, you know, it's, it's, but it's right suffering. It's right action. It's not wrong action. You didn't catch anything. And once you've eliminated this offensive uh, substances and metabolic waste from your body, you'll feel better. And that's what all your acute and chronic symptoms are. They're, you didn't catch anything, okay? And 
Swabbing is not necessary. This is just a basic physiological elimination process. It's no different than uh, normal physiological processes that we're all familiar with, that we all do every day, okay? But how how would you explain, like, if one person gets something that I would call influenza, we'll call it influenza A, and other people in their family or in their contacts, uh, whether they be close contacts at school or work, et cetera, how would the other people coming in contact with this fit with your model of elimination? Well, if the other people are participating in the same types of behavior and activities as the person who's exhibiting these symptoms, there's really good possibility that they're going to exhibit the same symptoms too because we're all human beings. And similar organisms subjected to similar circumstances and influences behave similarly. And so while it looks like something's going around, it's basically bad habits. And people are unwittingly poisoning themselves the body initiates purging processes, okay, so that you don't pass away, okay, and uh, that's where the education comes in. Now, I don't really expect too many people hearing what I'm talking about to believe me, and quite frankly, I don't really want you to. I didn't believe Tony Robbins. I had to roll up my sleeves and do the hard work and do the research. The first book that I read after listening to his lecture was called Fit for Life by Harvey and Marilyn Diamond. They wrote it back in the late 80s. I highly recommend that you that you pick up a copy of it, and you probably can get it at a used bookstore for a couple dollars. If that resonates with you, they wrote a second book called Fit for Life 2, Living Health. It's a little bit thicker and more information, which is what I did, and then I went on and on and on. And like I said, I've put in thousands of hours of reading. This this ended up being a, a, a voyage of discovery. I had no idea that I was going to know what I know now. Back then, 25 years ago, it's gone way beyond my wildest dreams. Well, and that's the fun part is that, you know, part of what I get to do hosting the show is hear from people like yourself who have a different idea on how to approach some of the same things I do every day. And the nice thing is that this provides a venue for us all to discover what it is that you've spent all these years studying and to hear a different perspective and, and respectfully listen to that and see what it is that you've learned after those many years of study and how can that be incorporated to achieve the end goal. I think we both have the same goal, which is people being healthy and, and living healthy lives and, and feeling good while they're doing so. Now, we've got a couple of callers on the line. We have Alan on the line from Kihei. Alan, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Thanks for calling. What can we do for you? Well, um, I, I had one question, and then I listened to the talk, and I kind of have a second part to that. And my, my big question would be, um, you know, we hear a lot uh, these days about how saturated fats are good for the nervous system. And so, um, you know, coconut oil and, and certain things are kind of high on the, uh, the popular talk. And I'm wondering what the doctors use about that and, and nourishing the brain and the body are. And um, the second part of the question would be with his explanation of understanding the purging process of the body. Is that something where um, he might recommend or suggest or consider the use of herbal medicinals to help the body expedite the process. And um, I'd be happy to take my answer off the air. All right. Well, two excellent questions. Let me sort of, before you get off the phone, let me see if I can summarize 
Um, Saturated fats, coconut oil, things to nourish the brain, helpful or not so much? Dr. Jack, your opinion on if that's something that you've, in your your many years of research and study, do you have a thought on saturated fats? It is something we're putting in our body. And then uh, I've got your second one down, so... So that's that's good, Alan. But Dr. Jack, tell me, what do you think about some of these thoughts? Nutrition and almost like using using food as medicine in a way to really nourish the brain. Good, bad? Well, foods nourish your entire body, not just one organ. Okay, and uh, nuts in their uh, uh, unaltered form are definitely should be on the menu. Okay, a variety of nuts, which coconut is one of. Okay, and so you can't you can't go wrong with with that uh, uh, unless you overeat on them, and then you can gain unnecessary weight if you're just munching down too many. And maybe a handful a day of nuts is, would be sufficient. And his second question, his second uh, question was uh, looking at you know you mentioned purging as part of a body process. Oh, okay, herbs. Do you consider herbs. herbs or herbal medicinals as helpful? You're basically, uh, you're, what you're talking about here is a body. The subconscious brain initiated conducted process of bodily elimination that's had, oh, I don't know, hundreds of millions of years to perfect itself. It doesn't need any uh, substances from the outside to, as- to assist in this process other than rest so that the body can regenerate nerve energy, right, and so that it can uh, facilitate these elimination processes. Now, I will... Uh, I'm glad the caller had this question because it brings up something that's really important. Let's say, for instance, somebody decided to read Fit for Life and inculcate some of their suggestions in the way they're living and eating. Well, what they're going to be doing is taking chemical stresses, uh, lowering the amount of chemical stress on their body. Well, when that happens, you have more nerve energy because it doesn't have to contend with things that it was contending with before. When you have more nerve energy and your body is systemically toxemic, what's going to happen is that your body may initiate a purging process, okay? And if you slip back into your old mindset of, oh, I'm sick, this isn't working for me, I better run and get a cheeseburger or whatever, that's a mistake, okay? This is, again, it's right action. Acute and chronic symptoms are right action. They're not wrong action. They're not things to stop or be afraid of. Yeah, you're just going to have to grin and bear it. It's not fun, but in other words, the dis-ease is the cure. Instead of trying to cure the cure with a substance outside your body, uh, your body's trying to cure itself, and you're just getting in the way. So you're just along for the ride. Yeah, it's not a whole lot of fun. I've had you know clients that have developed openings on their body where separated tissue came out. It scared the heck out of them, but it was right action. And all they did is rest and sleep and keep it clean. And after a few weeks, it healed over, and they forgot it even happened. Okay, and it's pretty scary looking too, okay? It's not, it's, it's not a, you know, a picnic in the park to see something like that going on on somebody's body. And ordinarily, they might think that, uh, you know, that they have an infection, well, basically what they have is an outfection. It's debris being excreted from the body. It's not something that got in the body. Well, and that's that's a different way to take a look at it is if your body is doing a natural process, kind of let that process continue and assist it in any way that you can. We've got another caller from Maui. We've got Paul Den 
calling in. Paul Den, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, I'm so happy to be on your show. I love it. I listen to it all the time. I'm excited to talk to your guests. I have a, kind of a three-pronged question, but it's all interrelated, and I would love to hear your view. One of which is, I think the average person really feels that the doctors and attorneys and PhDs of the world are a little bit brighter than most of us and are looking out for us. And over the last 10 years, I've had a very difficult time getting people with those particular degrees, PhDs and such, interested in looking at what's going on with the planet with uh, air, aerosol spraying, uh, heavy metals in the air, and phytonutrients. I would like to know what your opinion is uh, based on what I've seen is that our genetics are turned on and off by our epigenetics codes, which are fed by phytonutrients in food. And how can we attain these phytonutrients when we have Fukushima spewing cesium everywhere and our body intaking it like calcium and other uh, metals that are necessary for biological function? What's your guys' opinion on that? Because you guys are our heroes in trying to educate the public and outside of the big pharma, pharmaceutical uh, thing. It's not that I poo-poo science. I love science. It's just, it seems the social, political mechanisms in control of it have an agenda, and it's not healing people. What do you think about that? Thank you. Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I think it's sort of, as you were talking, it kind of gets to a lot of what a lot of folks are concerned about, which is what are we doing to our environment and how is that environment affecting our health now and potentially into the future? And you mentioned radiation exposure, exposure, and you also mentioned um, some of the other toxins that people are exposed to. And, you know, what does the body have as far as a defense and phytonutrients and things that we can get from plants and, and green healthy salads. And, you know, earlier before we started the show, Jack, I, I testing everybody's voice, I said, what did you have for lunch? And you said, a delicious garden salad. And you chose that for a reason now, taking a look at what Paul Den's describing. What are your thoughts on some of these issues about toxins in the environment and some of the things that we may be ingesting? You have uh, a bunch of material in front of you, books and and copies of websites and whatnot. What is your thought? Are we, are we taking in a bunch of stuff that we shouldn't be? And, and how can we help our body to eliminate that? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. Uh, you know, collectively on a, on a global scale, we are polluting the planet, okay? I mean, there's, there's floating trash mounds out in the middle of the Pacific and other oceans that are as large as, as U.S. states, uh, there's chemical runoff from manufacturing and, and uh, pesticides and herbicides in the water. Uh, personally, I rarely eat anything that comes out of the ocean. I just don't. You know, there's and even the Department of Health in Hawaii recommends that pregnant women stay away from seafood because of the mercury. Well, if it's not good for them, it's not good for anybody else either. Okay, but they especially should be on guard because of their unborn baby, and it can cause neurological anomalies and, and other things, you know, birth defects, okay? And so 
And so, you know, we're, we're not only doing that to the planet, but we're doing that to ourselves. And like I said, if we didn't pollute ourselves, then there wouldn't be any need for the body to conduct a dis-ease process, an elimination process, okay? As far as food, uh, you want to uh, try and, and uh, obtain the cleanest food that you can, Foods that are grown without pesticides and herbicides are normally described as organic. They may or may not have more nutrients. That's not even the issue. If they don't have pesticides and herbicides, that's your best choice. Do I always eat organic food? No, I'm not perfect. Do I have a garden? Yes. Is it something that I should be proud of? No, I'm not a really good gardener either. <laughs> all right. If ever I come over to Kona, I'm going to check it out there from you, Jack. But yeah. All right. So you're not perfect, but you're looking towards obtaining some of these nutrients from food. Absolutely. Phytonutrients in particular, something that you're looking at as a healthy source of nutrition. Absolutely. All right. So that's that's the verdict. Paul Den is, yeah, we're polluting the environment, unfortunately, ourselves. And also, if you want to really eat healthy and find good phytonutrients, you know, it sounds like maybe get some gardening tips. I don't know, Jack. You didn't leave me a lot of hope with your <laughs> garden, though, so I don't know. But uh, but find somebody who knows how to garden, and I'm I wouldn't either. I'll tell you. I wouldn't be a green I'm still learning. <laughs> all right. Well, that's good. Life is yeah. all about learning. It's right. a it's a huge process, and that's, that's the nice part about it is we're learning a bit today as well. All right. We have got Steve on the line from St. Louis Heights. Steve, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Um, I have a question about your um, guest theory of dis-ease or dis- with regard to epidemiology, and I and I want to give him two examples to see how he parses this question. Right now, we're looking at an outbreak in West Africa of Ebola, which is um, an awful, awful disease with a mortality rate of somewhere between sixty and ninety percent. Um, and it seems to be it seems to be concentrated in certain countries right now: Liberia, Senegal, Guinea. But it's also risking uh, coming across borders. Uh, some of the other countries with very strict, <clears throat> very strict border controls because they think that the disease is is viral born and is being passed along, and they want to stop it. That's one example of an epidemic epidemiology. Another one would be the one that we're all familiar with, AIDS, where um, it it is in the medical community an accepted idea that AIDS is caused by a human immune. Uh, a viral virus, a very tricky virus. And um, uh, how would he go about treating AIDS? How would he go about treating Ebola and these awful killers? All right. Well, two excellent questions, Steve. I've been certainly keeping an eye out on Ebola, as you're right. That is a very scary, scary uh, infection that has some serious mortality rates. In fact, it's considered to be one of the most deadly viruses that we know of. Um, given the mortality, like you mentioned, 60 to 90 percent. And also you mentioned another outbreak that, boy, back in the 80s scared a lot of folks. And when you look at some of the movies and some of the research and some of the information back then, we didn't know enough about it. And therefore, a lot of theories and fear took place. And so I'm curious, Dr. Jack, so given your experience and your history and your theory of dis-ease, meaning not having ease in your body and therefore thus the term disease, what are your thoughts on that? I have very strong thoughts on that. Uh, would you like me to address AIDS first or Ebola? 
Well, let's go number one and two. Okay. Number one, Ebola. Number two, AIDS. Okay, well, uh, there is a there is a misinformation campaign going on about what's going on or maybe going on in Africa. I'm not over there. All I know is what I hear on the radio. Uh, again, what I've heard is that the major symptoms are vomiting and diarrhea. These are body elimination symptoms. Well, the that, major symptom is, is bleeding through, uh, is arterial bleeding. Okay, and that's one too. And it's bleeding into the cells because of the deterioration of the, of the walls of the arteries. That is the medical description of it right now. Okay. How would you explain that? Uh, there's something going on over there if this, in fact, is, is actually happening on the scale that I've heard on, on the news that is causing a lot of people to become highly contaminated, okay? And it's not a nonspecific microorganism called Ebola, okay? That's medical uh, obfuscation or marketing or whatever you want to call it. They're eventually we're going to come up with— money out of it, fella. That really doesn't make a bit of sense. Well, the nice thing about what we're talking about today is a different approach and respectfully— well, this, is, this is downright quackery. <laughs> Well, Steve, so let's think about it for a moment. Well, think about it. It's quackery, and it's obvious quackery when you have something like Ebola, which is explainable. We can't treat it, but we know what causes it, and it's been seen. And if we, if we, if we perpetuate this kind of view that, that we don't have to worry about viruses, we don't have to worry about germs, what you're going to get is more sick people. This guy makes money out of this, but it's quackery. It's, it's evident quackery. And somebody ought to call you and tell you what it is that you're putting out over the air. This is quackery. Well, okay, Stephen, you have a very strong opinion, and I respect that. Now, personally, my thoughts on Ebola is that, unlike Dr. Jack's thoughts, I do think that it is caused by a virus, and I do think that virus has been uh, exposed, well, people have been exposed to the virus, and that's actually the reason why they're having the medical symptoms. Um, we've we've done plenty of research looking at AIDS and HIV. And again, my my take on this as a physician is that it's caused by a virus. Now, respectfully, Jack has a different opinion, and that's the nice part about this show is that I have my thoughts and you have yours, and certainly, you know, Steve, you obviously have yours and, and very strongly worded such. The goal of everyone in and hopefully in the you know the world really is to stay as healthy as possible and although Steve you and I may be on one spectrum looking at viruses and bacteria and causes of different disease certainly Jack you may be on another spectrum and although they sound like they're radically different in what we are terming as the cause of disease, our end goal is actually the same, which is not to get sick, not to have illness, and not necessarily to be in a situation where people are are infecting themselves or causing problems for other folks in the nearby vicinity. So it is a different approach, Steve. I, I agree with you. And part of the hesitation that I had was whether or not some of the thoughts that, that Jack has are, are similar and or something that we should discuss. But the idea is that it's out there, and I want to discuss it, and I think we should give you, Dr. Ebner, a thought or at some time to have a rebuttal, because we may not agree, and I think on this case we really don't. But you have some thoughts on this, and you've done some research, and this is why you're here, to present what your ideas are and to present what you've learned over the years. 
in comparison to what I've learned. Sort of a agree to disagree on certain things, but know that in the end, the principle of staying healthy is really the same. So what are your thoughts? Now, I think Steve is off the line, but uh, Dr. Ebner, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm glad that Steve called in because I used to think like Steve thinks. You know, when I would develop what I thought was the flu once every couple of years, I would get uh, antibiotics, and it would. I thought it knocked it out, and, you know, the symptoms went away, and I was fine. That's not what's happening, okay? There's a whole different physiological explanation. And as far as, you know, AIDS back in the early 80s, I believed what I heard on the radio. I didn't know anything about physiology, okay? And for Steve to believe what I've said here, someone that he doesn't know, of course he's going to think it's quackery. Absolutely. And I don't want him or anybody else to believe me. What I would prefer that you do is you do your own research. Don't rely on the radio. Don't rely on the news. Now, what I'm willing to do, costs you nothing, is you send me an email at correctivenutrition.com to my email address, and I will send you my Word program, my entire library. It's several hundred books, videotapes, audio lectures, most of which are by medical doctors, okay? And if you read sufficiently in this area, it's not one or two books. You're going to have to do a lot of reading, okay, to change your thinking, just like I had to do. For instance, uh, you're going to have to read Peter Duisburg's book, Inventing the AIDS Virus. He's a uh, well-known laboratory scientist at UC Berkeley. He's a retrovirologist. You never hear about him. He was marginalized because he was not politically correct. Uh, He has tenure at UC Berkeley, so they couldn't get rid of him. That's just one example. There's many more. There's I've got seven books here that Kathy can see uh, that are all the contrary position on uh, on this whole AIDS thing, okay? And people, you know, medicine, what it does is it turns diet, lifestyle, and environmental causes into viral causes, and that's not what it is, okay? That's, that's, when I, that's why I use the word obfuscation. The whole AIDS thing started with serious drug abuse by uh, gays in certain large cities like in L.A. and Chicago and New York back in the early 80s, and that's why they became symptomatic, right? They were poisoning themselves. And then so there, Kathy, you can talk. Well, sure. And and again, part of what we're doing is taking a look at it. And there are seven books. Um, I'm going to go with you on that. Um, but we're taking a look at a different spin. And I like the fact, Jack, that you said you're not trying to convince other people to think your way. You're just presenting them with an opposite way and suggesting that they find their own path. Now, we are going to come back in just a quick break of about a minute, and we're going to talk some more with some other callers on the line about what some of their concerns are and what their thoughts are, and maybe we might have some ideas that might help them as well. So you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. 3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio all the time, usually while I'm in my car driving from one place to another. I love the news programs on public radio. I love listening in the morning and getting a good synopsis of what's going on for the day and then the commentary that breaks it down. And I feel like it's it's good, solid news that I can trust. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Two 
wings of gray hair protruded on either side of her florid face. But her eyes, sky blue, were as innocent and untouched by experience as they must have been when she was ten. I'm David Sedaris. This week on Selected Shorts, an unforgettable story by Flannery O'Connor from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jack Ebner. We're talking about what for some may be a revolutionarily different way to look at medicine and different types of illnesses. And so before the break, we were talking with Steve, who had some thoughts of his own about current outbreaks going on of what is currently known to be the Ebola virus. And he had some concerns about things that were uh, noted in the 80s with HIV and AIDS. And respectfully, Dr. Ebner agrees to disagree and has his own thoughts on what these particular illnesses might be from. But also, you know, I like the fact, Jack, that you said, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm trying to allow you to open up your mind and do your own research and take a look for yourself, which is, I think, really what we want to encourage everyone to do is, you know, don't take my word for it. Don't take his word for it. Take your own word for it and do some research and figure out what you think resonates with you. Along those lines, we've got a couple more callers. We've got Peter on the line from Honolulu. Peter, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much. I just, Kathy, I wanted to say that you have the patience of a saint uh, in dealing with the various callers. Um, Everybody my- <laughs> deserves a little bit of time and respect, and that's what we're going to give them. So what can we do for you today, Peter? Well, I, I'm afraid I'm kind of more in Steve's camp, and I would like to say that I don't think that what I've heard from your from your guest today that all explains vertical transmission of HIV from mother to child. Uh, I'm an obstetrician, and I've seen it happen. And those children are not doing drugs, and it happens in, in uh, cases where the child has no exposure to drugs at all. These are uh, poor little kids that get HIV, which is a virus, and they're, they get that from their mother. And I'm wondering how his uh, theory accounts for things like that. And my final comment would be, if, if he really doesn't believe that it is viruses that are causing some of these illnesses, he ought to hop a plane for Western Africa and help those poor people because he won't get ill from that. And so he could go a long way towards ameliorating the suffering that's there. Thank you. All right, Peter. Well, you know, certainly at this point, the CDC has put travel restrictions on any of us hopping a plane to West Africa. So, Jack, I'm going to say don't do that, um, only because of the fact that unless it's essential travel, uh, hopefully we will all be able to stay in our current location as recommended by our Centers for Disease Control. But you bring up a great point, Peter, which is vertical transmission. And for those people, it's when when a child is born and they may have obtained an infection or in the medical terminology, you may have a virus that is transmitted from the mother to the baby during childbirth or during the time of of the baby being uh, growing in the uterus, for lack of better descriptive terms. And so, uh, Jack, I'm curious, how would you look at something like vertical transmission between a mother and a baby, and how might that fit into your current paradigm for what you feel is the cause of different illnesses? Does that fit in somewhere? Oh, sure. Uh, Again, uh, if you read Dr. John Tilden's medical doctor's book written in 1928 entitled Toxemia Explained, uh, that may have 
somewhat of an effect on your thinking, number one. Uh, as far as uh, uh, a child being uh, exhibiting symptoms of, as you would call it, disease from the mother, uh, that's entirely possible and, and uh, depending on how the mother's living, probable, okay, because the placental barrier uh, doesn't, it's, it's, it's not a barrier to uh, debris getting into the body and the blood system of the uh, fetus. And so, uh, you know, that's why you hear about, you know, mothers should stay away from alcohol and various other things. Again, these are toxins. We're not talking, you know, virus as in microorganism here, which is apparently what you've been taught because, you know, you went to a school that wanted to make sure you really, 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 really learn that, okay? Uh, and the other thing, so a child can be born sickly. Certainly a baby can be b- born sickly from toxemia. And the other thing is, is that the Western bot test and the ELISA test, they were around long before the whole uh, uh, CDC cooked up HIV AIDS thing came along. And uh, they're basically a test to determine what a CD4 lymphocyte count is. And based on that, uh, depending on what the count is, uh, the medical translation is that you have HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, okay? And uh, it's, so in other words, the test is not looking for the virus. It's looking for an antibody to the virus. But there are many things that can trigger the antibody Anybody, such as uh, vaccines, uh, uh, having you know just a body a body that's toxic. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, an antibody to uh, a virus. It can medications can cause that. Okay, so it's well, the test isn't valid. Well, I'm curious, Jack. Though, how would you explain viral load? A well, viral load okay. is a test where you actually measure well, virus in a, in a person's body. and What's actually being measured or, or what, what they're talking about as far as what a human immunovirus or virus is, is our bodies are made up of about 100 trillion cells. And every, every given moment you have cells that are dying. You probably have hundreds of millions of cells that die every single day. Well, uh, fortunately, your body produces sister cells to take their place. Well, that that waste material from those dead cells that ran their course, the living cells, if they can use any of that to recycle, to rebuild their cells, they do, okay? Because if the body can get what it needs internally, then it doesn't have to depend on bringing it in from the outside, which is a very economical thing to do. And so one of the, th- one of the things uh, that cells expend when they die is their d- genomes, which makes up the genes. And again, we're talking about dead debris that the living cells will take in and recycle and use, okay? It's not the dead debris, what's referred to as a virus, that's taking over the cell or acting on the cell because dead stuff doesn't act. It's the living cell that's acting on the non-living, okay? And because uh, that's the way life works. It's the living that acts on the non-living. So what you're to describing ex- is that a viral load from what I would in the traditional medical world measure you're suggesting is not actually measuring a virus. Well, if you want to call uh, genetic waste a virus, you can, but it's okay. genet- It's just genomes. It's just genetic waste. And to the extent that, uh, like other waste that the body produces, isn't 
eliminated from the body in a timely fashion, yes, it adds to the toxic load, but it's not a microorganism that's eating your cells or, you know, whatever this, this methodology is that's being taught in medicine schools. Well, and that's sort of where we get to agree to to disagree on certain things, and, and you respectfully have not tried to convince me, and I, I will do the same for you. I do want to have time for, we have a very patient caller on the line, Nancy from Kailua Kona, and I'd like to give her uh, a chance to express her opinion. She's been patiently waiting and has some issues about nutrition she'd like to discuss. Nancy, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. It's not so much uh, things about nutrition. I was an RN in the 80s, and I saw w- the study that he was talking about that came out of Berkeley. It came across my desk. It was handed out in the hospital that I was working in, and most of us were tickled pink to read it because I actually quit nursing after being in it for 10 years because I thought that the American Medical Association is the biggest uh, crock of bunk in the whole world. It seemed to me that, and I'm not like, uh, I didn't become a nurse. I became a nurse because I was a science nerd, and I was a woman, so I had to become a nurse. They don't really like you to become a physicist. But um, what this gentleman is talking about uh, takes into account things that uh, Western doctors may not even think about because Western doctors, from what I saw, are quote-unquote trained. They're all taught the same thing, and very rarely it seems to me that they think outside of the box, or do they go back and look at the older um, uh, physicians' thoughts before the AMA became the purveyor of pills. Um, When I was a kid, if you got an infection in your leg, the doctor said, heat up some water, throw some salt in the water, uh, put a compress on your leg, and we were fine. We didn't take... 400 bottles of uh, antibiotics, which eventually kill you anyway. Uh, And who knows about the placebo effect of antibiotics, but I've seen a number of people treated by Western medicine, uh, and then they've come to me, and I'm no one, and have said blah, 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 and I tell them to drink bentonite clay mixed with water, and they're asymptomatic after a short period of time. Uh, I personally was told that I had shingles, and uh, my mother died after a, a Western medical experience, so I don't. I was like, okay, I got shingles. That's nice. Anyway, so I started drinking bentonite clay, and uh, within a period of it, it actually chelates metals. It takes metals, toxins, and poisons out of the body. And I'm wondering if it could do something to get rid of the what they're calling Ebola. Well, Nancy, you have some certainly uh, different thoughts than some of the other callers that we've had, and you may be matching with some of the things that. Jack is talking about. And so, you know, for all of our listeners today, I certainly feel as though we have had a very fruitful discussion of a different thought in medicine. And with that in mind, I want to thank you, Dr. Ebner, for being on the show. I don't know how the time has gone by so quickly, uh, but indeed it has. And we'll have to maybe pick this up again and talk some more about different theories in medicine. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook, our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, intrigued and interested, and we'll talk some more next week about another new novel approach to medicine right here Monday at 5 on The Body Show. 